All right, if you would look at the scripture passages, there's actually a couple of them that I'm going to read as we start off tonight, um, talking about loving your parents or dealing with your parents or uh, whatever the case is with you. Um, God calls us to honor our parents, to worship God and to honor our parents, and we need help with that. So we're going to look at God's word and talk about not only what we should do, but where we can find power to do just that. So if you have the, the outline or the little, the little page with the scriptures, we're going to look first at the Ten Commandments from Deuteronomy chapter 5. It's the first scripture reading there on the passage on the, on the sheet. God says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. In Matthew chapter 10, starting at verse 32, Jesus says this, Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. Whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Over in Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 29, Jesus says these words. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied. No one who has left a home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them, persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Over in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he has a whole section where he talks about various responsibilities and duties of husbands and wives, children and parents, slaves or employees and masters. But it's interesting in Ephesians 5, 21, the verse that sort of sets up that whole section, it says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Often, and actually in the NIV, there's like a little subheading that starts at verse 22, where they just start with, wives, be submissive to your husbands, completely missing the context of verse 
20. As a matter of fact, if ever I do a wedding and people want to read that passage of Scripture in their wedding, why submit to your husbands? I say, I refuse to do it unless you include verse 21, which sets up the whole section. So, for what it's worth. But later, later in, that, in that section, he says this in Ephesians 6.1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Let's pray together and then we're going to unpack some of this stuff. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We pray that you would give us your spirit to help us understand it. And not only to understand it, but to find courage to embrace the way of life that you lay out here for us. And most of all, We pray that we would come to understand you, our Father, our perfect Father, um, more fully. May we come to see you as more, more beautiful and more trustworthy than we ever have. We pray that we would come to worship you, even through um, studying your word together tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, As we look at this, you know, obviously the main passage where this idea, honor your father and mother, comes out is in the Ten Commandments. And I want to make a couple points about that before we dig into some of the more practical ideas about what that actually looks like. The first is this. You need to understand, and I think, unfortunately, a lot of Christians don't understand, the context of the Ten Commandments, the point of the Ten Commandments, was never to teach God's people what they need to do to be able to come into a relationship with God. The Ten Commandments start off with these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I think one of the great tragedies in our day when we have all these debates about whether you should post the Ten Commandments on courtroom walls or I even actually when that debate was raging drove down a road near my house and saw people that had signs posting the Ten Commandments in their front yard. But they never start with the first verse. The Ten Commandments stripped out of their context end up being a very distorted thing. The Ten Commandments were never the ten rules we need to obey so that we can get God to like us or so we can be in a relationship with God. They were never to be the ten things that we use to bash our neighbors over the head with and tell them why they're bad people. The Ten Commandments were basically God saying, look, I have brought you out of slavery. Here's how you live as free men and women. This is what I made you for. That's why in, one of J- in James' letter, in chapter 1, verse 25, James calls the law the perfect law of freedom, or as some translations say, the perfect law that brings freedom. Most Christians don't understand that because they, in their mind, have separated God the lawgiver from God the creator. But the Bible says it's vital that we understand that the one who has told us how to live is the one who made us. And so when he tells us this is what you were made for, he's inviting us to freedom. And the Ten Commandments are about that. The Ten Commandments are uh, spoken to God's people in the context of a relationship. I am the Lord, your God. Not I am the Lord and I would be your God if you would do all these things. I am the Lord, your God. I have initiated this relationship with you. Even though you had chosen to go into slavery, uh, I have brought you out of slavery, and now I am graciously telling you how to live in a way that will correspond to what you were made for. 
So understand that. When God says, worship the Lord God and honor your father and your mother, he's telling you what you were made for. He's not telling you that to to squash your fun and to, to offer all these restrictions on your life. He's telling you what you were made for. Tim Keller, pastor up in New York City, puts it succinctly and I think well. He says, the fact is, if God is both the creator and the lawgiver, then it's true that when you break God's laws, they break you. Because you're working against the design. You're trying to run against the design of what you were made for. The fifth commandment, though, the, the one about honor your father and mother, is almost all the Jewish and Christian tradition has always understood, though you may have never heard this, this is true, that the, 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 the people who have, have understood this and studied this for millennia have understood the fifth commandment does not deal merely with relationships with your parents. It actually includes all of the authorities that God has set under him. And so it's typical, for instance, the Heidelberg Catechism, which was a, a little thing written to help people understand the Bible back in the, in the um, time of the Reformation, in the 1600s, 1500s. Um, the, the, the Heidelberg Catechism is typical when it says this, that in the fifth commandment, I put this little quote here for you, um, the fifth commandment shows, all, that shows us that, that I should honor, love, and give fidelity to my father and mother, and to all who are in authority over me, I should submit myself with due obedience to their good instruction and correction, and also bear patiently with their weaknesses and shortcomings, since it pleases God to govern us by their hand. Here's the point. When Paul in Romans 13 says that God has instituted the state as a proper authority over people, Paul didn't just come up with that out of the blue. He didn't just make that up. When he says that, he is in keeping with the way the Jews understood the Ten Commandments. What you often have in the Ten Commandments is you have a particular example of the principle that's being talked about in that commandment. Um, and, then, and it's often the, the example that would be closest to home or the most grievous sin in this area. So, for instance, when the Bible, when the Ten Commandments say, thou shalt not commit adultery, Jesus says that includes even lusting after someone in your heart. He's not adding to the Ten Commandments. He's not changing the Ten Commandments. He's helping you understood that that was always what the Ten Commandments were about. The Ten Commandments use um, this principle of, uh, is it met- metonymy? Where they take the, you know, the part stands for the whole, and they pick the most grievous example, adultery. But it includes all kinds of inappropriate relationships with someone who is not your spouse. Similarly, when the Ten Commandments say, thou shalt not murder, it includes all unlawful killing. And Jesus goes so far as to say it also includes hating people in your heart. Again, he's not adding something to it. It was always there. So this commandment teaches us about authority in general, not just about relationships with our mother and father. And here's the point that it teaches us. We are to worship God. That's commandment number one. We are to honor lesser authorities, mothers and fathers included. Right? Worship and honor are not the same thing. And that is absolutely vital if we're going to understand uh, what God is telling us to be about. Here's the point I'm saying. God is the ultimate authority. He is the one we are to worship. We submit to him 
in submitting to the lesser authorities he set up. What that means is in the biblical view of authority, and a lot of Christians, I think, have, have been taught real, real lies about this. A lot of Christians have been taught that earthly authorities are absolute, whether it's your parents or it's your church or it's you know, the, the state or the police or whatever. But the Bible never says that. The Bible says, like that, that passage in, in Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, the one you are to reverence is Christ, God. And the way you do that is by honoring those he's put in authority over you. But your ultimate allegiance is always to God. What that means is tyrannical authority should be opposed. Tyrannical authority should be critiqued. You're never to blindly submit to any authority that would cause you to be disloyal to God. Because your ultimate allegiance is to God. And this principle, it worked out consistently through the Bible. In Acts chapter 5, there is a place where a couple of the apostles are ordered to not talk about Jesus. And what they say is, well, God, God has told us to tell people about this good news of what Jesus has done. And we must obey God rather than men. It also means this, that you are to honor your father and mother, but you are not to worship them. In other words, if your father and your mother tell you to do something that God says you are not allowed to do, you have to oppose them. If your parents tell you you can't do something that God tells you you must do, you have to oppose them. If the state tells you you can't do something that God says you have to do, well, then you have to stand against the state. What this doesn't mean is if God says you're free to do something, like drink alcohol, but the state says you can't do it until you're 21, you are not free to disobey the state in that relationship because God didn't require you to do that. If God allows something, the state says no, you have to obey the state because God has instituted that authority over you. Okay? Does that make sense? It's very important in resolving some of these uh, issues. And what it's really getting at is this. Ultimately, parents... Stand in the place of God, in a sense. In other words, the way that we learn chiefly to submit to authority in a proper way out of reverence for Christ is first by the way we relate to our parents and the way they relate to us. And I can hear you saying, okay, well, great, that was a good idea. Because so so many of us, uh, our parents maybe didn't do a very good job in standing in the place of God. And as a matter of fact, nobody in this room, no matter how great your parents were, have perfect parents. And so we have to try to understand first what were parents supposed to be about. And then we're going to begin to talk about what does it mean for God to be our perfect parent and even to deconstruct and reconstruct our idea of parenthood so that we won't be doomed to just parent the way we've been parented. Right? Well, here's the the point about what parents are called to be about. Ultimately, parents are to reflect the character of God into their children. Now, I know a lot of children that are content with much less than that, or at least try to convince themselves that they should be content. They're content if their parents pay their way for the things they want them to do, or keep themselves, or put safe, or put a roof over their heads. But God has told parents that they are to reflect the character of God into their children. That means primarily giving children a taste of both the strength and the mercy of God. And you see, children 
come into the world, and Dan Allender, a great Christian counselor, makes this point. I think he's right on. Children come into the world asking two core questions. And everyone here tonight is asking these questions. Am I loved? Is there someone who delights in me? And can I get my own way? Am I loved? And can I get my own way? Every child, every person in this room longs to know the answers to those questions. And here's the thing. Every parent has given you answers to those questions, whether they realize it or not. You want the answers to those questions, and you have gotten answers to those questions from your parents. Look at the, uh, the page with the scripture outline or with the scripture on it and turn it over. I know this is, is a little long, but I think you'll find this very helpful in thinking even about processing a little bit about your own experience in being parented. And, and this is from Dan Allender's book. He has a great little book called How Children Raise Parents. And I, I thought it was very helpful to, um, to, to, to share some of this with you. He, he talks about these two questions, am I loved and can I get my own way? And he says, basically, you know, there are four possible variants. You could answer that question this way as a parent. You could, uh, and this is what he calls the dangerous and demeaning response. He says, parents who regularly answer with, yes, you can get your way, and no, you are not loved. And there are parents that answer it that way, whether they realize it or not. Yes, you can get your way, and no, you're not loved. You're not delighted in. Parents who, who answer that way raise children who learn that their parents don't care what they do and that their parents do not enjoy them. Theirs is a soulless and inhumane home. And children in this home lack a conscience and have no concern for others. They must learn to find both love and rules elsewhere. Their search will usually lead to a gang or other group that serves as a surrogate family because they have to find both a group to tell them um, to limit them. L- being limited is actually one of the, the expressions of love. And a kid, I've always found this, the kids that that I've known, the students that I've known that are the most insecure, inevitably, are always the one whose parents had no rules and no limits to them. He goes on, he talks about the indulgent and distant response. Many parents answer, yes, you can get your own way, and yes, you're loved. He says, these children lack strength, and they grow up knowing only a counterfeit tenderness. These parents are often well-to-do, highly educated people who care more about public image and appearances than the hearts of their children. The children often are poised and competent, but they lack the strength of conviction and character that develops through bumping up against consistent boundaries. The children in this family are likely to accuse their parents of being manipulative, since the parents are unwilling to embrace suffering even the minor suffering of saying no to their kids. They won't do it. Thus, the children's accusations often surface through acting out, getting into trouble, pushing the limits to see if anyone will be strong enough to truly care. These children want the strength of appropriate discipline and long for the experience and delight of real love. Then there's the rule-bound and dull response. This, This is often in religious families, but not just there. Parents parents who answer, no, you cannot get your own way, and no, you are not our delight and joy, often establish a conservative home characterized by stringent rules, clear consequences, and high demands on the children. 
At the same time, this home often lacks warmth, humility, laughter, and tears. The children perform well, obey the rules, and succeed through hard work and perseverance. What they lack is passion, whimsy, playfulness, and vision. The children in this home, in this home accuse their parents of being self-righteous and dull. The children's accusations are made through silence and emotional distance. They see their parents as gods or cold, self-righteous despots. The children's response to such adults is to remain polite and disengaged. Then there's the response of strength and delight. This fourth option is really the only correct answer to every child's two core questions. You are loved beyond belief. And no, you cannot get your own way. These two answers provide children with strength that watches out for their welfare and with the delight of being loved without conditions. Sadly, this combination is the least common among the answers today's children are receiving. Too many parents shun the discomfort and inconvenience that come with answering no to the question, can I get my own way? Meanwhile, the unwillingness to embrace joy keeps many parents from answering the other question, am I loved? with a resounding yes. And he goes on, he says, as our children ask the core questions, they're wondering aloud about two additional matters. What is wrong with my family and how can I fix things? Because all children unknowingly try to fix their mothers and fathers and change the fabric of their family life. If we were really listening, he's talking to parents now, We'd hear the child's unspoken words as they attempt to provoke change. Our children invite us to grow, to become fully human. The invitation comes by way of unvoiced questions. Will you cry with me? Will you hold me? Will you be strong enough to face your own failure and grow as my parent? If we learn to listen to our children, we will find a precious truth. What they deeply crave is the same core desire we find in our own hearts. As we listen, we will learn to ask the same questions to the God who has made us and called us to be parents. And we will learn to listen to his answer to us. Yes, you are loved more than you could ever fathom. And no, you can't have your own way. But as you pursue my way, you will find the deepest satisfaction your heart can ever know. So those are the two core questions that every child asks. They're the two core questions that every parent answers one way or the other. And I encourage you to think even about your own experience. What were the answers that you got to those questions? What are the answers you think you're getting to those questions now, even, from God? But here's the good news, because there is good news tonight. That even if your parents did not answer those questions well, And everybody in this room had parents who at one point or another did not consistently answer those questions well. Actually, one of the one of the things that traps a lot of a lot of good church kids is is feeling like they can never they can never say their parents sinned against them. And and they feel like they have to sort of live up to these perfect parents. Nobody here has perfect parents. But everybody here who has embraced Christ has a perfect father. And here's what's so glorious and the good news for you to know tonight is the only person, the only son who ever had a perfect father, the only son who ever had a perfect father gave that up 
traded that perfect love for the wrath of that perfect father upon his head so that you and I could be reconciled to the only perfect parent we'll ever have. And when you come into a relationship with God, the only perfect father there is, you finally will get one who will say to you over and over again, I'm crazy about you. But no, you can't have your own way. God is the one who is both merciful beyond your wildest dreams, who says, I love you, even though time and time and again you try and use him as a means to an end rather than worshiping him for who he is. In spite of that, he says, I'm crazy about you. I love you beyond your wildest dreams. Yet, he also is the one who has the strength to say, I don't care how mad you get at me. You can't have your own way because I'm a good God and I love you. Everybody here is invited to that kind of relationship. God is the only perfect father who will always work for our good, even when it means thwarting our plans and telling us we can't get our own way. Right? So that's the good news. But what does it mean for us, this side of glory, this side of knowing God our Father face to face, what does it mean to honor these imperfect people that God has given us as parents? The first thing to notice in in the Ten Commandments passage here is that it says, honor your father and your mother. And I don't know if you understand how radical that is in the culture of the ancient Near East. All of the cultures around there are very patriarchal, and yet God says, honor your father and your mother. He doesn't just say, honor your father. And he doesn't say to wives, worship your husband. It says, worship God Honor your father and your mother. As a matter of fact, in Leviticus 19.3, moms are even put first. It's fascinating. Husbands and wives, Paul says in Ephesians 5.21, parents and children, masters and servants are all to submit to one another in the Lord. And that's important to understand. But what does it mean to honor them? If we dig into this a little deeper, it means basically this. The Hebrew word for honor or glory means to consider something as weighty. To honor your parents means to treat them as weighty. Uh, Former pastor of mine, Scotty Smith, is one of the pastors down at Christ Community still, says this, we are to accept the important place that God has given to our parents in our lives. And now let me say right away, for some of you, that's a very hard thing to hear. Honoring your parents does not mean pretending that you had a wonderful happy experience with your parents. But it means don't take lightly the important place of your parents in your lives. To honor them first and foremost means to understand how significant that relationship is. To consider them weighty does not mean that you worship them above God, that you submit to them sinning against you, but it means you consider them weighty. What does that mean? First thing is this, accept God as Lord, who is sovereign over the parents he's given you. And again, believe me, I look out in a room like this, and I know there are people probably in this room who have suffered grievously at the hand of very foolish, maybe even wicked parents. I've, you know, I've been doing this a long time. I've heard stories that would just make you sick to your stomach of the kinds of things that parents have done to their children or the kinds of things they've withheld um, from their children. 
But I do can tell you this, that God was on the throne and that God is committed to redeeming and to bringing to fruition that story and that everybody in this room has the opportunity one day to experience all that God intended from a parent. God is committed to not letting your earthly parents be your only experience that you'll ever have of what it means to be wildly loved and told no. And while you may, some may have experienced more of that goodness here in this life and others much less, one day all of those who are God's children will experience it will experience it in such a way that there will be no more tears. And the Bible's hope is very real. It's not pie in the sky. It doesn't mean that we pretend that everything that's happened to us in this life is good just because God's sovereign. Absolutely not. Isaiah 5, Isaiah says, Woe are those who call evil good and good evil. Those are real categories, and they really, they really mean what they mean. Some of you have suffered, suffered real evil. Some of you have suffered good from your parents. All of you have probably suffered some kind of mix. But God is not thwarted by bad parents. Again, I think that's one of the powerful testimonies of that hymn we sang from, from Henry Light. A guy who wouldn't, you know, a, 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 a man who would not let his own son call him father. I actually have never heard of that one. I've never had a student sit for me and say, you know, my own father would not let me call him father. He was too embarrassed to even let anybody tell me that I was his child. But, you know, there's a first for everything. I, I suspect I've known people that had that. Maybe they just never told me that story. But God is not powerless, even in the face of that kind of disappointment and that kind of sin. What does it mean to honor your parents? It means to treat them with respect. It means to listen to their instruction. It means to bear patiently with their weakness, to understand that they're sinful just like we are. But it means not worshiping them. Honoring our parents does not mean worshiping them. That's the point in Matthew 10, 32, where Jesus says, Look, following me may make you an enemy of your parents. That, that it, may be, it may be you can't have the love of God and the love of your parents at the same time. And if it comes down to that, you have to choose the love of God. I hope it doesn't come to that. Grieve me if it would come to that for you. But it may be. And Jesus wants us to be very realistic about the reality of what it means to follow him. Right? You cannot worship your parents. I love this. I love this from John Calvin. I mean, a lot of people have never read John Calvin. They just think they know some things about John Calvin. They probably don't know what they think they know about John Calvin. If you think he burned a guy um, in Geneva, you don't know anything about John Calvin. Um, we can get coffee and talk about that story sometime and why your English teachers are wrong about that. Um, but listen to this quote. I think this is fascinating. Calvin says this, For parents sit in that place in which they have been brought by the Lord, who shares with them a part of his honor. Therefore, the submission paid to them ought to be a step toward honoring that highest father. Hence, if they, our parents, spur us to transgress the law, we have a perfect right to regard them not as parents, but as strangers who are trying to lead us away from obedience to the true father. 
It is unworthy and absurd for their eminence so to prevail as to pull down the loftiness of God. On the contrary, their eminence depends upon God's loftiness and ought to lead us to it. In other words, except that they are leading us towards reverencing God, they really don't have honor. They have squandered their honor and they've tried to misuse it and it's, well, it, it really has been taken away from them is what Calvin's saying. This is fascinating because a lot of people think of Calvin and the Puritans and those people as sort of perpetuating this sort of patriarchal kind of world where everybody just submits to brutal you know, parents and brutal authorities and all those sorts of things. And, you know, I can't, I, I don't think there's any other picture ever that I've seen in a movie um, about what these kind of family relationships that the Puritans and the, and the Calvinists um, looked for. But, but Calvin doesn't say that at all. He goes farther than a lot of Christians that I know today in saying that if our parents try to lead us away from God, we have a perfect right to regard them not as parents. Whoa. Again, Calvin has a clear sense of what parents are called to be about. We worship a parent when we give them the love and submission that belongs to God alone. We don't honor them. We worship them. And that worship is inappropriate. Furthermore, um, sort of a sub-point under this, is to drive children like slaves or to abuse children sexually or otherwise, to fail to protect them, is to forfeit the right to be called parents. Christian theologians have said this consistently throughout the centuries. And you need to hear that. Because there may be people in this room that need to be set free from that tonight. Paul limits what fathers can do, right? He says, fathers, don't exasperate your children. In other words, your father does not have the right to do with you whatever he wants to do. God says no. That's important. Your parents do not have the right to do whatever they want with you or to you. It's not what it means to be a submissive child, is to let them continue to sin against you. We also, though, worship a parent by having unreal expectations of them. And maybe that's more close to home for a lot of you all. Um, Expecting them to care for us perfectly. Uh, I like this, the way Scotty put it. He says that all parents are sinners. No parent can possibly meet the deepest needs and longings of our hearts. Many of us are consumed with anger, hurt, and a victim's mentality because we've never gotten over the fact that we are not loved well by our parents. Listen, to honor our parents means to not put them on a pedestal and expect them to be God. And that may be the place of repentance. For some of you, the place of repentance may be to be able to say, I, I've been abused and I've been, you know, been basically told that I need to keep it quiet and silent and worship my parents, basically. For others, it may be I'm so mad at my parents because they've never been God to me in the way that I thought they should have been. And you may need to repent of that, Right? We like to have our cake and eat it too, see? We do. We're selfish, right? We want our parents to pay for us. We want them to remove all the consequences of our sin and whatever stupid things we do. And then we want them to stay out of our lives, <laughs> right? And I think it spills over in the way we treat God too, actually. We want him to, you know, clean up our, clean up our messes, but to stay out of our lives. Again, the two core questions, am I loved and can I get my own way? And the answer, yes, you're loved. No, you cannot get your own way. What are a couple practical applications as we bring this to a close? First is this, to plead with you to have patience with your parents. Have patience with your parents. 
They are finite. They are sinners. Not only that, have compassion on them. Because whether you understand it or not, being a parent is one of the most shame-bringing experiences you will ever have. Most parents are well aware of how poorly they parent. Most parents, most of the time, have no idea what they're doing. And they feel like they don't really have anybody that they can ask. All I can tell you is whenever I've been at parent seminars, you can just see the parents sitting at the edge of their seats, desperate for somebody to tell them exactly what to do. Because they just don't know. And they're so scared about screwing up their kids and seeing you all in counseling one day. Right? They are. Do you have any idea of that? Actually, some of you probably do. Because I find that some of us know pretty well that our parents feel pretty guilty about their parenting, and we've used that to get our own way and manipulate them. So for some of you tonight, you need to have compassion and patience on your parents. For some of you, you need to repent of manipulating your parents because of their guilt. Because if anybody can see your parents' idols and know how to use that to get your own way, it's you. Kids always see their parents' idols better than anybody else. And so you need to wrestle with that. What does it mean for you to honor them, not just to use them? Um, I think there's almost no area of life that brings more shame than parenting. You will discover this one day. And until that day, have compassion on your parents. Have you ever thanked your parents for the good things that they've given you? I remember when I was your age, a friend of mine suggested that I just write a letter to my parents telling them what I appreciated about, about them. And I did. And, um, you know, it's, it's fascinating. I, my dad said, you know, I got your letter. Thank you. <laughs> he could never even really talk about it. And it's one of the sadnesses of my life. We don't talk at that level about things. It's very uncomfortable with that. But it was important for me to be able to, to express that. And maybe that would be a great thing for you to do. See, it's interesting. College is the time. When you first go away to college, it's often the time when people who are in really, really bad dysfunctional families start to see it for the first time because they're finally out of this family system that's just so crazy. And they begin to hear about other people's family systems. They're like, whoa, I guess it's not typical or usual for this and this and this that I've been experiencing. And other people, it's the time when they can kind of look back and be like, wow, I never realized how good I had it how gracious and wonderful my parents were, how thankful I am now that they didn't let me get away with half the stuff I wanted to get away with, and I made them miserable and I made them pay for disappointing me. But now I'm so grateful. Well, tell them. Tell them. One day, you may have to care for your parents. And I just want you to think about this. Put this little seed in your heart. The Bible is very clear on this point. Proverbs twenty three twenty two. You can look it up later. Um, another practical thing. The way you love anybody, and this goes for your parents, is to simultaneously envision their glory and yet don't shut your eyes to their sin. You have to really be able to do both to love people well. It's really how you love anyone. And it's always easier for us to do one or the other. Some of us, we just easily see people sin, and we just can have no hope that God can change them. Others of us were just such optimistic people, and we believe that God could change this person. I have such a vision of what this person could be if they'd be set free from their fear and their idols. But we just often 
try to convince ourselves that they're really not as bad and screwed up as they really are. And so we'll say things like, don't ever change, you're great just the way you are, right? That's never an expression of love. It's always an expression of worship, right? And if somebody says that to you, you should run. Actually, you should stand against them and tell them that they're an idolater and that they need to repent. That would be... That would be helpful. Maybe some of your relationships would get at least initially worse and then hopefully much better if we could do that. But that, you know, seriously, you need to be able to envision people's glory and simultaneously see their sin. And, you know, it, it, it's absolutely vital. And this, of course, is how the Lord loves us, right? He envisions our glory. He's committed to it. And yet, he does not just shut his eyes to our sin and pretend, ah, you're fine. Everything's great. Don't worry about it. No. He's committed to changing us. And it's good. And and to love anybody means doing that. So I ask you, when you think about your parents, it's probably easier for you to do one of those than the other. It's probably easier for some of you to see everything that your parents did wrong. Others, it's probably hard for you to admit that your parents did anything wrong because you think they're so wonderful. And for you to say that they did something wrong is going to throw your world into such chaos and disarray, you just won't go there. The fact is, your parents have sinned against you, but they also have been God's conduit of grace in your life. And, uh, and it's important we recognize both of that. And finally, for most of us, many of us at least, we have to allow God, our perfect parent, to redefine what parenting is supposed to be. And here's what I need to tell you. You are not doomed to parent just as your parents did. The gospel really has power to break the pattern of generational sin, but it doesn't do it automatically. It doesn't mean that just because you become a Christian that you automatically will know how to parent. No, parenting takes wisdom. It takes actually practicing and thinking through how does the fact that Jesus lived and died in the place of sinners, the fact that I'm more loved than I ever dreamed was possible, and yet I'm also more flawed and sinful than I ever realized, both of those true at the same time, how does that play out into the way I am going to parent myself one day? I often tell you know, couples in premarital counseling, both of you are going to come with certain expectations. Some of you saying, look, I am going to absolutely do it just the way my parents did. This is how you do things. You know, you take out the trash and I do this and this is what families do. And others come in saying, I am going to, I don't know what we're going to do, but I know we're not going to do what my parents did. And they're just as controlled by their parents as the other. And here's the point. You don't throw tradition out. You don't have to reinvent the wheel, but tradition always needs to be submitted to God's word. And when you get married and when you think about parenting one day, and this is so fascinating, you'll think that you've kind of got all your issues figured out when you get married after the first couple of years, and then you'll have kids and you'll realize that there's all these levels of issues and expectations that you never knew you had. And that's okay. God has continued to work on you to make you more and more dependent on him. But you need to remember this. You come to those places of disagreement and you have to, you have to say God's word is the authority. We did it this way. We did it this way. But what are we now going to do? Taking wisdom from this, from what we've learned, but how are we going to parent? And so, for instance, I, I know a, a couple that, you know, the, the, when they tried to, to, to talk about how they would discipline their children, you know, basically the one person in the relationship said, we will absolutely not spank because spanking was used inappropriately in my childhood. We won't do it. And the other person said, well, no, we have to do it. The Bible commands it. What are they going to do, right? Both of them have to wrestle with the scripture, not just their experience in being controlled by what they liked or what they didn't like. 
right? What that means is that we have to come to this issue of parenting and we have to say, God, how can you deconstruct and reconstruct for me what a perfect parent is about? And, and of course, I gave you some suggestions here. There's all kinds of them. What is God our perfect parent really like? And of course, to fully answer this is to sum up the whole Bible. But listen, he's, he's so much. He's a nurturer. You thought that maybe that was just a female character trait. It's actually not in the Bible. It's something used of God himself all the time. He's a provider. He's a protector. He teaches us truly. He loves us. He disciplines us for our good. He's intimate in his relationship with us. He fights for us. He gives us his name. He gives us his inheritance. He chose us to be his children, fully well knowing how wretched and sinful and ungrateful we would be. Right? Some of those things are difficult for you to believe about a parent. And the place to start is to meditate on that. I remember uh, R.C. Sproul said one time, the best way to grow as a Christian is to go through the Bible, underline everything you don't like, and then meditate on it. Because either you need to change or God needs to change. And he said, I know where I'm placing my bets. Right? For some of us, we really need to wrestle with, all of us really need to wrestle with how have we projected our parents onto God rather than letting God and who he has revealed himself to be define for us what it means to be a parent and what it means to be a child. Let me pray for us.